Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. Thank you for sharing your evening with us. We really appreciate your time, your energy, and uh, the fact that, that there's somebody out there listening to us makes it even all the more better for us to do these shows. I want to thank first Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. If you want to listen to more of that amazing voice, you can find him at nativestorytellers.com. He and his wife have a wonderful website. They are Native storytellers and the way that they weave their magic into stories and their wisdom into stories and their history into stories and their cosmology into stories is profound. Check it out. It's fascinating. Mark has some great guests tonight. We're going to be talking about one of my most favorite topics of all the topics we cover. And uh, we're going to be speaking first with Dennis Stone from American Stonehenge. And then we have some guys who are going to be talking to us about the Newport Tower. So uh, sit back and enjoy yourself because it's going to be an amazing show. Mark, it's all yours. How are you, Barbara? Doing well. Good. Yeah, it's, um, t- tonight's show's uh, focus is on historic preservation and uh, reevaluation. And one of my Christmas gifts to our loyal listeners is that there's actually some semblance of continuity uh, between the <laughs> first and second hour. And uh, uh, like Barbara said, uh, uh, you know, we'll be covering America's Stonehenge in the first hour and Newport Tower and some uh, yeah, possibly related out of place artifacts from the New England area in the second hour. Uh, but you know, you've uh, probably seen uh, Dennis on the inaugural season of Scott Walters' America on Earth, or heard him on Willie Miranda's show on KCOR on Friday, and Cat uh, Hobson's uh, Fate Mag Radio show on Sunday. Uh, He's with us tonight. It's a, 
uh, three shows in five days. <laughs> I'm glad you could uh, fit us into your schedule, Dennis. And, uh, and America's Stonehenge is located in uh, southeastern New Hampshire, uh, and he has some updates he wants to share with us. So, hi, Dennis. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Mark. Hi, Barbara. How are you doing this evening? Doing well. Doing Good. very well, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on again. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So, it, uh, Dennis, you've, you have a forestry project going on now. Uh, what's the purpose uh, behind um, removing some of the trees at America's Stonehenge? Well, yeah, we've been actually thinking about doing this for many, many years. Uh, we actually had the University of New Hampshire Forest Extension Service. People come out to our site, look at the health of the woods going back into the 1990s. And um, more recently, one of our uh, researchers, the late Dr. David Stewart-Smith, about five or I guess more like seven years ago, he told me I, we might want to look at getting a licensed forester to look at our forest and have a program of thinning the forest, opening up the astronomical alignments, making fire lanes, also fire roads for equipment in case mm-hmm. there's a forest fire. But basically the health of the woods, the health of the animal population, and our woods is pretty overgrown, and I've been thinning it you know, myself, and my dad did some for decades and you know we probably have about 15 or a little bit more than that out of the 106 acres looking pretty nice but we have the other 90 acres almost that still need a lot of work and you know I retired three years ago and it picked up a lot but David's suggestion going back I guess about uh, about seven years ago he had his property done up in New Hampshire and he said it came out beautifully it's not the old horror story of people coming in cutting your forest making a mess butchering it leaving debris he goes it looks beautiful when they get done with it but you have to have the right people they have to be licensed you know and Mm -hmm. um so he put that bug in my ear and i'm you know i was still flying at the time at the airlines and then then, because i retired three years ago and i again really picked up the cleaning up there but i realized it was up against i won't live long enough to do the other 90 acres i don't think you know so (laughs) we got a hold of a uh, like I say, the Forest Extension Service came back again uh, last, a year ago this summer and uh, early in the summer. And they gave us, they walked the forest and said, this is a great candidate for forest management. Um, and after we discussed the whole thing for many, many different reasons, we should do it. Um, he gave us a list of you know licensed foresters in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. We interviewed a couple of people and we chose one. And he also not only has his own business, but he does work for the state of New Hampshire. So he's, you know, he's very, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's known, you know, and he's, um, you know, he's very qualified and the state uses him too. So, you know, he's going to do a good job and he loves mm-hmm. the, uh, he loves the history and the prehistory of the site. Um, and so, uh, we uh, worked on that uh, about 18 months ago. We began that, and, you know, we got him going on it. It takes a long time, though, so if somebody's thinking of doing this, it, you know, you got to plan way ahead. Um, you know, not quite two years, but maybe a year and a half to two years to get things going because <clears throat> they have to line up the uh, the forestry people that come in with their equipment, too. So he's the in-between guy. He's kind of between us and the people that are actually doing the work now on the property, which started, uh, let's see, almost four weeks ago they started bringing in the, the equipment. 
Um, and that big thing is um, we have thousands of feet of walls. We have all the stone structures. We have the standing stones. We have these quarried stones that are all over the hilltop. We found the first one in 1982. These are multi-ton big slabs that were quarried off the bedrock and propped up with a field stone, kind of a rounded you know, stone. Usually they're about a foot and a half to two feet across, and they're holding the stone in the air. And what we found out in 1983 by Dr. David Stewart Smith and also the state archaeologist uh, who's still alive right now, he's retired, uh, they said that these stones were actually shaped using a technique called percussion flaking. It's like napping an arrowhead, but on a multi-ton scale. So this is a strong piece of evidence that, you know, the builders of the site weren't somebody in the colonial or post-colonial period, that it was actually ancient Stone Age technology. And since that time, we found about 30, about 33 of these big slabs, up to 1,000 feet from the main site. They're still sitting out there. And, you know, we had to uh, tag all of these. So I walked with the uh, licensed forester, and he's a great guy. And, you know, again, he's really interested in all this and protecting it. And we had a yellow tag, all the, all the things we have to protect, quarry site, the stone walls, you know, the standing stones that are monoliths part of the uh-huh. astronomical calendar. Yeah, so we had to go out and do all of that. And it took, uh, it took really a couple months to do that. And then he ended up painting every tree. And there are thousands of trees. He had to spray paint every tree with like a blue, you know, right. uh, I did each one individually. And then he, he picked out any trees that were mature, any trees that were going to be dying. Um, also, um, evasive species. So, it was, you know, many, many different things he was looking at and also protecting the wetlands up there. So leaving a few more trees around some of the vernal ponds up there for the animals and stuff like that. If you take too many trees, from, it would actually dry out these ponds, you know, with the sun beating down on them. So it's a 30 page report. He, uh, he uh, wrote about the whole project. And then we also got the uh, United States Department of Agriculture involved with this. And that kind of a parallel thing going on and they can provide assistance too. They actually uh, ended up paying for that 30-page plan, which is very nice, you know. And um, the plan wasn't really required, but we wanted it. And then the USDA said, oh, you know, we can, you know, cover that because you want to – you have, you know, one of the few big areas in Salem, New Hampshire left, you know, green spaces, you know, and they really like it, you know, that we're protecting that much land from development, you know, and all of that. Um, so they may actually reintroduce things like the New England cottontail, some animals that are on the endangered list. Once this is complete, we may have some, you know, more animal life. We have a lot of deer, turkey, you know, red-tailed hawks, and we have some eagle in the area. We've seen a few of those. Uh, so we have a lot of wildlife up there that we're going to protect, too. So it's not only the forest, but the wildlife. And what they're making out of the wood is uh, the good quality wood will become lumber. The lesser quality is firewood. And the other is wood chips for a power company to make electricity. And the other product, which is actually a little bit more valuable than the wood chips, is pulp for making paper. So they're making like four different products, and nothing goes to waste. Anything that's mm-hmm. left on the ground either stays there. I'm going to make firewood out of it. But when we get done, it will be like a park. And you'll be able to see the uh, walls much better. And we are opening up alignments that we never opened up. We opened up the first one in 1967, the winter solstice sunset. Um, and that's because of a 19... 19- 65 TV show on CBS called The Mystery of Stonehenge. And that show is based on Gerald Hopkins' book called Stonehenge Decoded. And he was from the uh, uh, Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics and I think Boston University. He's from England originally. But he wrote a book how Stonehenge might be a computer. A lot of the members, including my dad, of a group called New England Antiquities Research Association, <clears throat> and also the people that you know, were involved with our site before that, knew about these standing stones out in the walls, but they were all hidden in the forest. You had to actually go out into the forest and find these standing stones. 
And even going back into the 1930s, Mr. Goodwin, the first researcher, knew these stones were out there. He owned about 20 acres of land, so some of that was was not on his property, actually. It was on a neighbor's property. Uh, Eventually, my dad ended up buying the entire hill, about 106 acres, to protect all the walls, all the astronomical alignments, and, you know, even the quarry sites that we found later. Um, And so in 67, we said, you know what? This particular stone looks like it's in the southwest. It looks like it could be where the sun is on the shortest day of the year, the winter solstice. And he began clearing it with chainsaws and axes. I remember them doing that. I was a kid at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have it really ready for 67, I think. They had it kind of almost ready, but uh, the weather didn't cooperate. Uh, 68, 69, the weather didn't cooperate. In 1970, you now next year at this time, we'll have a 50th anniversary of ever watching a sunset on one of these monoliths. And I was there with my dad. Uh, the manager of our place back then, his first name was Warren, and a next-door neighbor of mine. So four of us, we we went through the snow. It was probably about a foot of snow, and we made our way up to the top of the hill, probably around 3.30 in the afternoon, and we stood there, and it was a very cold day. And then around 4.15, the sun's coming down, and it set right on top of the stone. So after that, we began opening up the other alignments, but we never opened up the lunar major standstill. So the moon goes through a cycle every 18 and a half years. Uh, one particular year will be what we call lunar minor alignments, and they're actually on some of the cross quarter days. And for the listeners, uh, we have not only the four seasons, but we have days in between the seasons called cross quarter days. We do that at Stonehenge, and there are a number of ancient sites out west in the United States that have the same the same feature. They're approximately no, uh, November 1st, which we just had, February 1st, August 1st, and May 1st. And those, uh, we'll see now, the November 1st, um, I'm sorry, February 1st and August are the, were the lunar minor alignments. They, they're, they're right in the, coincidentally, they're right on the same alignment. The lunar major alignments are outside. They go really far further north, five degrees than the sun does in the summer solstice rise and set and the moon will rise and set six months later to the south further than the winter solstice sunrise and sunset so we've never cleared out those alignments in 52 years and that's what we're doing right now we're going to open them up and that alignment will be in 2025 so we should have them open plenty of time and hopefully the weather will cooperate because we're going to actually witness something we've never seen before with those stones we know they work when they surveyed it and put it in a computer but we've never actually watched it with our own eyes. So we got something coming up in a little over so, five years that will be kind of cool. Okay. So, to, to, so the foresters arrived about a month ago, and you know they're still there. Uh, and with all the alignments that you just mentioned uh and you know the lunar uh, major and minor uh a- avenues that you want to uh open up for people to see how many uh alignments are there on the property because you you'd have like the summer mm-hmm. solstice uh, sunset and sunrise, and it's all, all going like different directions. Uh, what, what, are we looking like at at twenty? Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. Yeah, it's actually quite a few. Uh, the um, so there's the for the four seasons you have, of course, you know the equinox will be over the same stone, but there'll be summer and winter. But actually, you could consider that, I guess, you know, four 
you know, really three points for the rise and three points for the set because the, the equinox cro- is for fall, the spring, yeah. The cross-quarter days. That's another four for rise, and that's another four for set. Uh, so I call it about 29, and plus the north, true north, and south alignment. And the site does have the four, uh, four cardinal points. Uh, the north-south alignment we have in the east-west, of course, would be the equinox for spring and fall. But uh, there's 20, uh, let me see now, there's 20, um, uh, 26 alignments and with a cross-quarter in the quarter days, quarter days being the seasons, and then true north and south alignment. And then the moon will go through four for rise, you know, for the lunar majors and minors on the moon rise, and the same thing for the moon set. And like I say, the minors actually use the same alignment for February and also for August for us, which is kind of cool. And it it's like a duplicate, you know, thing that it's this it will kill two birds with one stone. This particular alignment, you know, but the majors again, we never open those up and. They actually would be the hottest because they're the longest alignments, the way they're hill-shaped and everything. We have to clear out several hundred feet of trees. So those were actually, they're at an angle, you know, greater, and they're across more of the hilltop and more across the, you know, all these trees. So we're really excited about that. And they're actually, right now, they've been here almost a month, and uh, they had a couple of slow days because we had, like, 21 inches of snow, and they could work in that. But one day they couldn't get to work, so that was one day. And then they had a couple other things going on that kind of uh, slowed them down a little bit. Uh, and they, they get most of the roads made, uh, but they haven't started on the lunar major north and south specifically. They've done some ends on them kind of, but they haven't. So we haven't opened them up yet. You know, I think probably in the next week or two, probably by the time the winter solstice occurs, we'll have some of them starting to open up for the first time. And we'll have the winter solstice on Saturday the 20th. And, uh, and Christopher Scott Walters, you mentioned earlier, he's going to visit us on the 19th uh, coming up. Um, and he's going to go to the Newport Tower. I think he's got a lecture in, in the Boston area. Um, so it should look pretty neat for people that haven't seen the place for, you know, for a year or two. And like yourself, you haven't been up there for about four years, so you'll be pretty right. surprised on the next next visit. Look, uh, we go up there every day and we're shocked. In fact, my daughter-in-law, she lives next to us. She got lost in the woods just because it's so disorientating. They're opening up trails and stuff. And I get up there and I'm like, where, where the heck am I? I, I? I've been here, you know, I've been coming here since 1955 as a little kid. And I actually, myself, I had to stand there and go, wait a minute, where the heck's the trails? In which direction am I? It looks so different, you know? It's amazing. And the hill looks bigger. The uh, the walls look pretty cool, you know? The walls really start to stand out with all the, without all the brush and all the trees, you know, all the stuff on top of them. And one thing will look real nice is the blueberry bushes are going to take over that hill, and they kind of have, you know, starting in 67. So uh, we have that blueberry season. It's going to be pretty phenomenal up there, and uh, they do kind of keep down some of the weeds. So it's going to look really pretty with the blueberry bushes. 4,000 years ago, the hill probably was mostly bare, and mm-hmm. a hundred shovel test pit study that we've done with our archaeologist has been with us since 1989. She's still doing them. Um, and we got close to 100, almost one per acre. And her husband was a doctor of geology from Tufts University for 30 years. So between the two of them, you know, like good geology and good archaeology. And she said it looks like the hilltop was 75% bare about 4,000 years ago, her estimate was, you know. Uh, could be, you know, pretty close to it. And so bedrock and then about 25% covered with glacial soil, soils, and some vegetation. So the original people, when they looked at the hill, it was a fairly open hill. 
And I think the hills around here, too, are also more open and not forested the way it is today. There's a lot of, you know, bedrock with a few trees and brush, that kind of thing. So a much more open place. And we're kind of returning in a little bit in that direction, you know. So it, it, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> okay. And, and uh, when uh, you, know, you, you have a crew of guys out there in the winter, I, uh, uh, I really wouldn't want to be – uh, working outside during a New England winter, but um, how is dealing with that kind of climate uh, different from uh, being there in July in shorts and a, a t-shirt and you know, doing all the work? Is actually the frozen grounds uh, better uh, to protect a, uh archaeologically sensitive area? Yeah, definitely. You know, and that's one reason we pushed it towards winter to have the ground um, frozen. And it has been for about most of the time they've been here, it's been freezing up pretty good. We've had a couple of, you know, warmer days with the rain, and it caused a little bit of muddiness, you know, in a couple of areas where it was very wetly and kind of a little bit of damp area anyway. But, yeah, in the summertime, um, if it's very dry, it wouldn't be too bad either. But if you have, like, spring would be bad. New England has mud season, you know, that's a bad time to do it. The tiles, they have track vehicles, and they have these gigantic wheels with chains on them. And they would, in the spring, make a total mess. You know, they would sink up to their axles, you know, in the mud. But we do have a lot of bedrock there. So, you know, they're riding over that with a thin layer of soil. But there's some areas where the soil's deeper. And uh, then you get into that area, and you can, you know, you can go up to your axle in that. So it's better to have it frozen. And that's why we really said we'd like it to be done in the winter. Um, the number of tourists coming through, much less than the summertime, of course. And we want that ground frozen and hot. It will help protect any ecological things underneath it, you know. Um, so yeah, it's better. And, you know, the equipment they're using is all air conditioned. They get heat, you know, and I think they get cooling in the summer. So they're in closed cabs, you know, I mean, completely enclosed. They're listening to music, uh, I guess. And and they actually have like, they actually, I believe have a screen in there and it, and, and it, and they can get, you know, commands from, um, from, um, their supervisors saying, Hey, uh, we need you over here or something like that. So it's, it's all done in safety. And it's done mm-hmm. very, very nicely. And the guy, I guess you have the guy mu- music. He just plays it when he's uh, having his lunch. They actually eat in the the equipment. They have the lunch right in the equipment. They they stop, eat, and then they continue on. And uh, okay. uh, everything's about safety and everything. But yeah, they're doing a great job. Yeah. So winter's better for that. Definitely with the grounds frozen. Um, and they put down some logs too in some bad areas, so they won't go into you know they won't dig into the soil. You know, a little bit that's going to happen anyway. But all right. Well, you know, that's just uh, aspects of uh, historic preservation that, you know, probably a lot of people don't think about. I was just kind of, you know, wondering is, uh, you know, is, is this the preferred time of the year to do that? But you know, that's mm. interesting. So with the, you know, some of the trees being, uh, removed and you also uh, marked where some of the quarried stones w- were and other uh, 
places of interest. Um, ha- has anything been uh, discovered, or ha- have you made any new realizations with uh, some of the trees uh, c- coming down, or like when you know the, uh, you know the roots? Uh, if any of the roots have come up, you know, are you finding any artifacts in the root balls? We are keeping our eye open for that. Uh, most of it is, except for the uh, what they call a staging area, which is about an acre, you know, where they have all the equipment that loads the trucks with the logs and also the wood chips. That area, they did pull the stumps out of there, and I was keeping an eye on that. And that already had been looked at with a shovel test pit study, you know, um, as I mentioned. But we're keeping our eyes open for any kind of stone tools or anything that would look interesting, you know, because um, one of the things we're trying to locate is where these people were to live. They may have not lived, you know, on top of the hill. They may have lived down near the Spigot River, Unfortunately, the Spigot River is right at the bottom of our hill on the west side. It's a tributary of one of the larger rivers in New England called the Merrimack River. But um, that's where the housing, that's where all the homes went in. You know, a lot of them went in, uh, in since the 1980s. But even if you go back into the 1800s and even a little bit earlier, there, there's some homes down here that go back a couple hundred years. And that would be, I think, where these ancient people would live. They would live in hide, wood, or bark houses, something that's perishable. Very similar to what <clears throat> happened over in Europe with the megalithic sites. Most of them are tombs, temples, and monuments, uh, and not domiciles or places where people live. And just with all the modern equipment we have, like LIDAR and satellites, are starting to discover where these people live, like they built Stonehenge, for instance. But it's been frustrating for archaeologists for years. It's like, where did they live? They built these magnificent stone ruins, but they didn't live in them. So where did they live? You know, what they lived in is now gone. It's underneath the ground, and maybe there's some stone tools. You know, maybe there's some ceramics at a later date, um, that kind of thing, fire pits, maybe even some burials. But um, So we're keeping a really close eye on that. I We had uh, 21 inches of snow right after they really got going up there, covered everything. We still have snow covering the ground up here. It's uh, in the last uh, day or so, we lost quite a bit of it, but um, everything got completely buried up there, you know. So uh, I think in the spring, and because they're going to finish up in the within a month, I think uh, next spring is when we're going to get out there and start really looking around, taking more photographs. And we have a guy that has a thermal imaging camera that he's done quite a bit of work for us over the last couple of years, and he has a high definition camera too. And um, this thermal imaging camera can see details in the ground that you can't see with your eye, down to about 14 inches. I think it was a $12,000 camera he mentioned, and his drone was like about a $6,000 drone. And he switched the cameras out from high definition to the uh, thermal imaging. And he said when he's done, he's going to rent this uh, software. It's like 360 bucks a month or something like that, process all that data, and we'll have a one square mile, which will contain the entire hill. Um, it'll be a 3D model of the hill. But the problem with this equipment, it doesn't like trees. If you use LIDAR, which he's used before, but he prefers thermal imaging, um, LIDAR isn't bothered by trees, but the thermal imaging camera is. It just leaves a big blank on the picture. You know, It doesn't know what to do with the pine tree or when the leaves are on the uh, deciduous trees. So he's worked in the spring and he's worked um, in the fall after the leaves have fallen off. But now with the thinning of the forest, you know, come back with that, with that equipment, and maybe that's when we'll start to see some patents up there that, you know, without the trees in the way. And I'm mm-hmm. really interested to see what our, some of the serpentine walls look like because we can see some of them in this beautiful. They look beautiful in his imagery, except, you know, there'll be a couple pine trees and you lose the picture. You know, the whole thing, you know, you don't see the whole um, 
you know, like one, one of them is 165 feet long, roughly, one of our serpentine walls shaped like a like the letter S, and it has a big triangular head. But there's a big pine tree on the head side of it, so you can see part of the body and how it just kind of goes across the landscape in this big S, and then you just lose it in his imagery. You know, it's it's under a pine tree, which, you know, doesn't lose its needles, you know. So mm-hmm. that's what we're kind of looking at. Yeah, and I think we're going to see some other things. I know it's the walls, because we have a new road that goes around by the astronomical alignments. And if you look at it from the other side, which we really haven't because it's been so thick a forest there, but it isn't now, and you look back at the wall, and you can see the undulating shape of the wall like the back of the snake much better. It's like almost unidirectional, you know. It's like, wow, that really shows up from this angle. The same thing that happened in Connecticut, uh, North Stonington, but 400 serpentine walls. And there's other stone walls that are like some of them are only 10 or 20 feet across. That's it. And the gentleman that wrote the book called Ceremonial Stoneworks is the unidirectional. You can walk on one side of this wall. It's only 20 feet. And that's the length of the wall. It doesn't make sense for a farm at all. And you don't really see it. You go on the other side. Oh, what a beautiful artistic piece of stonework, you know. But they don't serve any purpose. You know, there's no purpose to them. So I I was in the western part of the site looking back towards the site at that on the other winter solstice and going towards the uh, spring and fall equinox sunset. I was looking to the east, though, the opposite direction I normally look. I'm like, whoa, that looks really cool. You know, you can actually see the humping in the wall up and down. And that is part of a 2,550-foot serpent wall, we think. So that kind of thing, we might, you know, see more of that, you know, from different perspectives, looking at something you know, kind of unidirectional, like, wow, that looks pretty cool. It was all buried in the woods. We couldn't see it before. So, uh, by the way, North Stonington had 100 acres of their land done uh, last year by a licensed forester in Connecticut. And some of the people from that project actually spoke at the spring meeting this year at the New England Antiquities Research Association. They had pictures and everything, and they described, you know, what they did, why it was done, how it was done, and what the results were. Because um, one of the problems is uh, these trees, they grow next to the walls or chambers. If the tree gets blown over when it uproots, it destroys the wall or structures. Or right. if the tree falls on top of the walls, it causes enorm- uh, enormous, a lot, of, a lot of damage, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things is we're backing away these trees away from the walls, you know. Um, and that's one thing we told them. We want the, wa- the walls clear the trees so we can not only photograph them from the air and from the ground, and people can see them that are touring our site, but we don't want damage to these, you know. I mean, it's it, you can see where some of the walls have been, you know, the tree has fallen on the wall and knocked over one of the, particularly the standing stones, you know, the big slabs of stone stood up. Sometimes they get knocked over when a tree hits them, you know. It may be multi-ton. They might have been there for centuries, but you get a big tree crashing down. And our forester said the average pine tree up there at our place is over 1,000 pounds, and you get that weight come crashing down on top, it's going to move the stone, you know, for sure. They cause damage. So so we are backing away trees from in the roots too, you know, to get the trees mm-hmm. away from these things, you know. So that's one of the big projects we're doing, you know, and we're really, really excited about this whole thing. It, 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 yeah, and you know, speaking of, um, you know, like, just say a tree knocking over um, a yeah, standing stone, I, you know, one of more in- interesting stones you showed me was that uh, 14 foot menhire that uh, was recently discovered and it, you know really enjoyed seeing the stones that were quarried on site 
and there's like a, a small stone under one end, like it was going to be propped up and moved to a location. And like you, you, you know, you've been finding a lot more uh, of those that suggest that the uh, property was uh, suddenly abandoned. Uh, uh, with that um, amount of stones that were quarried and left for whatever reason, there was obviously uh, the, the original idea was for a much bigger uh, calendar, uh, you know, greater function than what is there today. Um, Have you been able to tell where uh, some of these stones were going to be taken or what they could have been aligned to just by, you know, where they were left? Um, yeah, that's a good question. We really don't know the answer. Some of the stones are pretty close to the site. There's one actually between that, uh, one of the structures called the watch house, which we believe is the, big, the head of the uh, 2,550 foot serpent. And the watch house is a pretty cool structure as a big, you know, glacial boulder with a building with a structure mm-hmm. built to the left side of it. If you're looking into it, there right. are 50 of that. There's 50 of that design in uh, New in- uh, in the north, not just New England, but in the northeast is about 50 of that same design. Big glacial boulder, natural, you know, left by the glaciers, and the structure built on the left side of it. So that kind of architecture carries out throughout the northeast. There's about 50 of them we found so far like that. Um, and between that and the main site, probably about 300 feet, and right then in the center, we found. One, it's one of the smallest actually cord stones that we found still in its, you know, in its socket, in situ they call it. And I kind of noticed it back about, oh, five, six years ago. And we've been walking by it for decades. And, um, and, and there it was all propped up. And I, I looked at it and I looked at the edges of it closer. And um, on what they did is they dressed the stone or shaped the stone. And sometimes the stone will come out. They like it except for one edge and they'll actually touch up that edge to make it, you know, the shape they want. And I looked at it and one of the edges had that serrated edge where somebody had been taking a hammer stone and were, they were beating on it just like an arrowhead to knock off little flakes and they were shaping it. Um, and I brought, I drew that uh, attention to that stone to Dr. David Stuart Smith. And he goes, Oh my God, it's been right here, right in front of us all these years. He goes, oh, that's really cool. You know, that's great. You found that. So pretty close to the site, but some of the stones are up to a thousand feet from the main site and down the hill. Um, and these stones look like they were the type of stones you would use either for like a, uh, when they built the chambers, they built, um, you know, sack stones for the most part, just stones laid out horizontally and mm-hmm. they just, you know, increased the height and put and on top, they put these gigantic uh, stones that are roof, what we call roof slabs. And that generally they're some of the biggest stones on the site these roof slabs are multi-ton, and they're kind of a lot of them are oval-shaped, and they all fit together. And like in the in the Oracle Chamber, one of the biggest structures, uh, as an example, the roof never leaks in there, even though it consists of multiple roof slabs uh, across. And it's kind of a if you look down at the Y, uh, the Oracle Chamber is kind of shaped like the letter Y, and then the, and it's orientated true north and south, and that avenue is almost 30 feet in length. 
and then it has a branch that goes east and west. And it consists of a, a lot of the different types of stones. It has a couple of glacial stones in there. They actually split one in half, and they, they used it for the structure, kind of like anchor stones. That's on the eastern part of the chamber. And it has big blocks of stone that make up the walls, you know, the vertical walls. Uh, and then on top of all this is gigantic roof slabs, but not the biggest roof slabs. Uh, one of the bigger ones is adjacent to that in a chamber that's actually a two-story building. And the first floor's roof, which is also the floor for the second story, is about almost uh, 30,000 pounds. Granite weighs about 163 pounds per cubic uh, foot. So if you just come up with the dimensions, you can figure out what the stone weighs. And that stone's enormous. And that one was only moved about, uh, let's see, now it was moved about 15 feet from its quarry site. It was actually an earthquake fault line. The whole hill is split in half. And they utilized that crack for one edge of the stone. It's perfectly straight. And then they had to shape the other three sides of it and then transport it about 15 feet. <clears throat> but similar sized stones are up to 1,000 feet down the hill from the main site. And I think they were intended as roof slabs or what we call orthostats. And an orthostat is a big slab that stood on its end and generally kind of rectangular in shape, you know, generally. Um, the east-west chamber has a couple of these as examples. And there's a structure that's missing next to it. Back in the 1800s, some of the stones were taken away from our site. We think possibly a third of the site's missing today due to quarry activities. And they were using some of the stones for local building projects, hauling them down the hill, and, which is unfortunate. But that happens to sites all over the world, whether it's the pyramids in Egypt losing their limestone caps, you know, or even Avebury. I've been to Avebury, and some of the stones are missing from Avebury. That's near Stonehenge. And Stonehenge itself is missing some stones. You know, and that's a worldwide thing. It's a problem, you know, with vandalism and people um, not appreciating, respecting, or understanding what these sites are uh, due to education, you know, and information and all that. And people say, no, I like that. I'm going to take that and use it for my, my project. So there is one right next to that east-west chamber, the same kind of big slab, and it's fallen over. But in the 1930s, it was still standing in the first photographs taken. It looks like it was another big chamber with orthostats and roof slabs. The roof slabs are gone. One orthostat, which is a big stone. And sometime in the 1940s, I don't know what happened. It could have been an earthquake or just it settled, and the whole thing fell over, and the top of it busted off. But it's very similar to the ones in the what we call the east-west chamber. Um, so the type of stone that we're finding quarried, we're either going to be like roof slabs or wall slabs, the orthostats we call them, or maybe um, you know astronomical marker stones. And you asked me earlier, I think we had the 26 I mentioned, but the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, when they looked at our survey data from 1973 to 1977, we had a professional surveyor. His father was the president, I believe, of the New England Survey Association. So we got somebody very reputable. He's still around today. He's kind of retired from surveying just recently, like I retired. And he visited us last year. Uh, um, so we surveyed the site and sent all that data to um, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. And 77 and in 78 we get the results back they said that if these were used for astronomical purposes these these stones would work about 1800 bc and that agreed with the 1971 carbon dating of the main site almost 4,000 years old so um they also mentioned and this is something we haven't we have not um figured this out yet we need more people and our Last gentleman working on it died in 2002. He was a doctor of astronomy, archaeoastronomy, actually, from Penn State. He'd been there for 30 years. About 22 years ago, he joined us, and he started working on looking at the, what we had already done for research on the astronomical alignments since 1967. He was also looking for um, 
other things such as a report from 1978 from Harvard said you have 24 star alignments. In one of them, we knew it was the North Star. Today, it's Polaris, but 4,000 years ago, it's Thuvan. So he was working on identifying more alignments. So I think uh, 26 plus 23 more, um, I think it's 50, uh, 49 alignments possibly at the site. And I don't know if the ancient people were going to add any more monoliths for other, you know, for other star alignments or something like that. But, um, you know, they, I think they had a much bigger pro, um, uh, complex than I think they were still building this site. And just in the last few years, we found we went from finding maybe, um, oh, maybe 15 or 18 of these big stones out there to 33 of these quarried stones. And like I said, most of them were just found in the last three or four years by myself and my son and a few other people. So I think they had a much bigger plan for the site. But then it dawned on us, it looks like they had something like a work in progress, and they stopped. And then the question is, why did they stop? You know, what happened to them? Why didn't they finish it? And it really, you know, kind of, it really, uh, you know, it took me by surprise, actually, you know. And so, because we all originally thought maybe the site was built, it was used, and then it was abandoned. Maybe it was reused again. And then, you know, in the uh, 17 and 1800s, you know, people started settling in the area, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, the site was complete, basically, you know. But I think you had a much bigger plan for the site with all these stones all over the hilltop. And over in Europe, they call those stones that have not made made it to the construction site lazy stones. <laughs> so it's kind of a funny term. <laughs> I don't think it's the fault of the stone, actually. But they actually would quarry it, start to shape it, you know, prop it up, and then they would, you know, get ready to transport it, and they just abandon it. And so the term lazy stone comes up, I guess. And so I thought that was kind of a cool term. Okay. <clears throat> When people are there for uh, uh, the winter solstice uh, celebration you have going on on the uh, was it twenty? Is it the twenty second this year? It's it's on Saturday. I think it's the uh, right okay, twenty twenty first. Okay, uh, you know that mm. in a couple weekends. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, um, you know, are are all of the stones for uh, you know the different alignments, or is it all the same type of stone, or is there a difference? Uh, like sandstone and is used for one, and limestone for another. Or, uh, do, is there a, a Specific meaning for certain the use of certain stones for the winter solstice sunrise, or I'm uh, just just wondering. Yeah, I know. Like at Stonehenge, they have the uh, the you know the blue stones from Wales, right. and then they have the sausages from Abel's Stone, which is a good question. Uh, it's pretty much granite, and you know, it's, okay, all the stones are pretty much from the hill, uh, and the granite itself, it's um, you know, it's it's uh, made of a uh, up with quartz, gives it hardness. It has. Um, Feldspar it kind of gives it color, and then it has mica, and it gives it. Once you polish, oh, wow. you can polish it up like a gravestone. But it has. A, we do have quartz and quartz crystals on the hill, but it's pretty much all granite. Yeah, and um, unlike you know the difference at Stonehenge, you know, so it's all local stone. Although some of it was dried probably a thousand feet, like some of the ones that are still out there, some of the lazy stones. But it's granite, and uh, other than that, the boulders, um, like the watch house 
big boulder was due with the positive there by the glaciers. So those things are not from the hill. They came from probably somewhere northwest. And if you get a geologist, he might be able to even identify because we have a lot of big boulders on the hill. And some of them were incorporated into the astronomical alignments, such as the Watch House boulder. You know, it's a February 1st and a lunar minor. So that's a pretty complex structure. Just, to, you know, we never appreciated the Watch House for what it was, you know. And actually, the entrance of the Watch House, we had a uh, app on a phone called Sunseeker, and one of my friends, you know, or Haley, last spring got in there, and she she aimed it and everything. And I thought, in the back wall of that Watch House, if you look from the outside looking in, there's a, a, a stone in the back wall that's very, very light in color, almost white, you know. Mm-hmm. And when you take pictures, it really stands out. And it looks intentional because the rest of the stones are more like a darker, grayer granite, you know. And this and this stone's very light. Um, and when you put the sun seeker on it, it looks like, and we're going to see it now because we're opening up that avenue with the uh, forestry project. We should be able to see in the spring equinox if the sunlight comes up and there won't be any trees in the way for the first time, you know, that we've been there. And the sunlight should go into that chamber around 9 o'clock in the morning and illuminate that stone. And it's funny because in New Grange in Ireland in the winter solstice, not the equinox like this, the sunlight goes through that avenue. And I've been there that, you know, it goes right through that window over the entrance of New Grange, and it goes into the chamber about almost, I guess, 65 feet. And it illuminates the back of the chamber about 9 o'clock. And the Newport Tower, I think, if I got my story correct, and I've you know, read quite a bit about the Newport Tower, and I've seen Scott's show, I think around 9 o'clock is when the egg is illuminated on the winter solstice also. So 9 o'clock, we're going to try to watch that. We'll get there a little bit early next spring. Hopefully the weather's good. And uh, the sun will go into that chamber, and we'll see what happens. You know. Yeah, and that reference to uh, New Grange, and what you said earlier about you know, uh, you know, went up in 1967 to yeah, just experiment to see if the winter solstice uh, sunrise happened over one. Uh, you know, rock. But you know, it's you know when I think about you know the construction of New Grange. You know, how long? How many uh, winter solstices did they have to sit there? You know, those cloudy Irish you know mornings. Uh, waiting for you know, the sun to actually uh, shine to get that rock uh, put in place in you know the precise location for the sun to illuminate it. Yeah, like, no yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, how you know, like how many generations or <laughs> like. 10, 15 years, did it just sit there waiting for those few minutes on December 21st? Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. Even at our site, you know, we had to wait three years to actually watch it. But yeah, you can actually watch the, uh, those alignments for the sun, you know, the solstice, I mean, it's the sun stands still in that case, you know, and it'll be about a couple of days. You can actually watch it before it starts moving in a different, you know, back in the other direction, you know? So uh, but you're right. Yeah, if they had weather, it could be a couple of days of bad weather. Now you've missed it. You got to wait to next year, and then the same thing could happen the next year. So, 
That's a really good question. And then they talk to climatologists about, you know, what were the weather conditions back? New Grange goes back almost 5,300 years, I guess, when they started constructing mm-hmm. it, something around that. And, um, you know, did they have a, you know, did they have a little drier weather pattern back then, you know, with the, you know, and it might've been a little warmer too. I know around the time of Stonehenge, some people thought maybe the stones from Marlborough Downs, about 18 miles uh, from Stonehenge for the biggest 50 ton stones might've been dragged on. There's a river called the Avon river there, and maybe it was frozen, but when they looked at it, the climatologists said, well, no, it was, it was a warmer time period. So that river wouldn't have frozen, you know, it would have a frozen to hold a 50 ton stone, you know? So then, well, maybe they floated the stones down, you know? So they're looking at climate too, you know? One thing about Stonehenge too, we have a tree problem today at our site. You know, we love our trees, but they're in the way of the alignments, you know, and causing some damage. And that's true all all over the the Northeast, you know? Uh, But over almost 5,000 years ago with Stonehenge, they had actually, uh, they had um, a forest problem there. We had the opposite. We had very few trees probably 4,000 years ago, but 5,000 years ago, Stonehenge had a forest. And then they consumed a lot of the wood, you know, for fires, for building, and for, you know, logs for probably rolling, you know, for building the site. So they they don't have a tree problem. It's pretty open today, you know. Yeah, they made Woodhenge, too. Yeah, they did. Yeah, and they used up wood for that. But, yeah, they don't have a – when you go to Stonehenge today, it's pretty open, you know, pretty open countryside around there. I've been there, I think, four times. But four – Almost 5,000 years ago, they had a forest. So it's like, what did they do to clear the trees so they could watch the alignments, you know? They were using a lot of wood, you know, consuming it. But, you know, did they actually cut out avenues in the trees so they could actually watch this? It's something I I, I guess next time I visit, they'll ask some of the people over there about that question, you know? What do they think the people did um, so they could see, you know? Just like we're doing, we're clearing, clearing out the avenues, you know, with modern equipment today. But 5,000 years ago, what did they do over there? Just, you know? keep cutting the trees and using the wood, you know, and, then, and, you know, they did do cremation. So that would consume wood and all the log rollers and all the levers and homes built out of that material probably. And uh, so they had a tree for a problem and we have the tree problem today. So sorry, in a way of the alignments, you know, <clears throat> and, and speaking of uh, uh, Stonehenge, uh, you know, with, yeah, the, the serpentine walls you've discussed and um, you know, the alignments that are uh, opening up uh, more. Uh, ha- have you uh, found that the megalithic yard was used as some kind of standard unit of measurements? Uh, throughout your pro, it, it, uh, it sounds like there, there was. You have a couple examples, but it was a megalithic yard used uh, on a more wider scale at America's Stonehenge. We're going to have to look at that, Mark. You know, the main site, you know, the one acre where most of the chambers are, we seem to have found it in there. You know, and I built that model back 40 years ago, and I. In the 70s, uh, we have a diorama when you first walk into the visitor center, and I was measuring, doing some measurements for the model back in the 70s, and we were aware of the megalithic yard, which is 32 inches, 0.64, and it's found in megalithic sites of Europe. Dr. Alexander Tom, who we've met, actually discovered that. And it's found throughout Europe, but they're finding it in South America, Central America, and some of the mounds down in Louisiana, you know, in Alabama. Um, and we think that you know, we're going to have to get out and look at some of the walls, you know, and see if they were based on the megalithic yard. You know, where a wall will go and then maybe it turns, you know, 
and bends and goes in a different direction and then it's you know and then it stops or something like that because that's been some of the serpentine walls just have a head a body and it stops so I'm kind of curious as to what length they made these serpentine walls there's about 30 we have 12 of them at the site anywhere from 30 feet up to 2550 feet roughly you know it'll be interesting if the megalithic um, unit of measure was used in those. So that's a question we don't know yet. But I think now that the force is clear, we can get out there and uh, t take, you know, measurements. Um, maybe we can get that survey gentleman back and he can help us with that. I did mention it to him and he was kind of interested in that because he was not aware of the serpentine walls at all, you know. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, that's something we're really interested in. In the main site, we need laser scanning, I think, you know, use a laser scanner, and then we can measure those chambers very accurately, the height, width, and, you know, the depth of these structures, and see if the megalithic yard was, in fact, used at our site. They're finding at some of the sites down in um, Hudson Valley, where there's over 200 chambers, that's the highest density of chambers, Westchester and Putnam County, and uh -huh. uh, they are finding some of the megalithic units there, too. And in Connecticut, I've been told, too, by one of the vice presidents in NERA, he told me that, too. He goes, yeah, we're finding that. And when I mentioned another thing about he goes, I wouldn't be surprised because we keep finding the megalithic yard used in different places, you know. So it's, it's, it's fun. People have to get out and measure these structures, you know, in order to determine that. So. Okay. And when people uh, – Congregate there on the December 21st for the winter solstice. Are, are they going to see the same view that's on the cover of uh, the, the book America's Stonehenge that uh, it was co-authored by your dad and David Godsward? Yeah, yeah, and that book came out in 2003, I think, and we're going to have a new book out, you know, because it doesn't have a lot of about the uh, serpentine walls. Uh, we'll do more with the megalithic yards and more about the quarry sites and also the windows. We didn't even mention the portals, the beautiful stone windows in these walls, and there's about 13 of those we've discovered just in the last three years. But, yes, that is a winter solstice. I think that picture was taken in 1970. As I mentioned, that was the first year. And we went up there, and next year will be the 50th anniversary of that particular pitch, uh, picture. So that's what they'll see. Um, we will have it a little bit wider, you know, because we're going to open up the avenue more. We should be able to see the sun. It will come down at an angle. And actually, there's a beautiful rolling hill behind on the horizon. And the, stone, and the sun should kind of go right down that hill and then hit the top of the rock, just like the summer solstice. It should be pretty nice, especially if we're going to open it up now, you know, wider than it's ever been opened up before, you know. So... They should, and it will be on Saturday the 21st, and, you know, hopefully the weather is really good. It's a weekend. It could be a nice turnout. Depends on how the weather goes, and, you know, um, it's, it's all dependent on that, of course, you know. Okay. And, um, you know, we have about five minutes, four or five minutes left. Um, wow. So uh, how's the, the – uh, snowshoeing or the alpacas okay with this cold weather yeah they love they love it they got nice thick fur right now we shared them in uh early june and we'll and we do it once a year and they're they're enjoying it they've been running around the snow they don't like deep, walking in deep snow so the snow's come down a little bit because of the warm couple of days and the rain we had and they were out there running even our forest just said do you your, your seven alpacas are going crazy up on the hill today running around they were just out having a great time because they've been stuck indoors because of the 20 inches 21 inches of snow we had um so yeah they're doing they're doing very very well uh we'll have a celebration on saturday the 21st also we have a lady that's been doing it for almost uh 
27 years now, I think. She does the summer solstice, she does the equinoxes, you know, and then she, uh, she'll have a celebration all planned out for the winter solstice. Again, if we have a blizzard, that could, you know, that could rain, on, you know, I mean, it could put a net, you know, we might be closed that day if we have a blizzard, but uh, we have everything all planned out with activities and everything on the uh, 21st uh, Saturday. And like I mentioned, Scott Walters will be up a couple of days. Uh, he'll be up two days before that to come up and, you know, check the site out. And there. he hasn't been up for about a year and a half, so... Uh, so we've got some things coming up. And then the next one after that will be a cross-quarter day, February, uh, about February 1st, right around Groundhog's Day. It's called InBlock. And it's, you know, that will be the next one. That's, that alignment will be over the Watch House. So oh, okay. that will be open. We might be able to see that for the first time, too, because the trees have never been cleared beyond it. And that will be another thing we'll be looking. So that's another big thing, too. That will be the first time we might be able to actually see the sun because there's so many trees, you can kind of tell where the sun comes up through the trees, but it's really hard to see it, even if, you know, we have a lot of hardwoods, too. But since it's going to be clear, it may actually be pretty nice to watch that this year, you know. <clears throat> okay. And let's see. Uh, you, you're going to be open on, you know, for for the winter solstice, and you're closed on uh uh, Christmas. Uh, if you know people want to stop up, uh, you know, see all the you know, new views, uh, you know, get Scott's autograph. Uh, <laughs> what they they could uh, uh, go to your website. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, What's com. Yeah, that's it. And then there's a uh, email address if they want to send us a message. You know, we can answer that. There's a phone number in there. <clears throat> then we're on Instagram and Facebook, and um, we also have a free app download on your uh, a- Apple phone or Android. Um, and you go to the Google Play Store, I guess, and it's under America Stonehenge. A little logo you'll see with us. Uh, it has one of the sunset. It's like a logo, and you can actually um, do a tour at your home if you like of the entire the entire thing. It has pictures, text, and it talks to you. And if you come and visit us, you can use it and you can walk around with it. And people love that, you know. And we have a four-page tour guide map, and they take that with them anyway. But we started this about um, a year ago last summer, and everybody that's used it really enjoys it. <clears throat> For those that can't come and see us right away or maybe, you know, ever, you can still do a whole tour of our site, um, you know, right on, your smart, right on your smartphone at home in your Lazy Boy chair if you want, you know, so. But, um, yeah, so StonehengeUSA.com, they can check us out. Okay, cool. Well, uh, yeah, Dennis, we have about another uh, minute or so. Uh, do you have any last mm-hmm. uh, minute things you want to plug or uh, next two guests are ready to yeah. go? Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that because my dad was involved with some of those um like a spirit pond rune stones and, you know, to some of the things, Newport tower, he was involved with that in the sixties. And um, so, and I have a new book, as I mentioned, coming out, it'll probably be out in the spring. Uh, it should be an update of everything. Um, so we're kind of excited about that too. And um, we might be on another brand new show on science. They've already filmed us. So science channel, we may be on something. We'll announce that on our website. If that gets, uh, if that gets to go ahead. So kind of excited about that. So, but yeah, th- again, thank you so much for having me on tonight, Mark. Thanks for giving us some uh, you know, behind-the-scenes information on what's going on up there and uh, you know, 
we really appreciate it. And uh, you, know, you can, you know, we're going to switch over to our other two uh, guests. And you know, I just want to th- thank you for uh, being uh, kicking off the show tonight. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, and I'll be talking to you again, Mark. Thank you, yep. uh, Barbara, and, and the listeners. Have a great holiday season. Talk to you later. Bye-bye now. All right. Bye, Dennis. Bye-bye. And, yeah, we have uh, had a, a couple guests um, I just mentioned the Newport Tower as evidence of transatlantic voyages prior to Columbus, but uh, we haven't really examined – what the tower actually is. Um, I think you know, very quickly we're going to uh, find out we have a historical conundrum with the this artifact in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, Steve DeMarzo and Patrick Skelton, or Shackleton are here to present their research into this enigmatic uh, structure. Steve is returning after his appearance with us in May, uh, where we discussed his heroic his historic preservation and documentation efforts throughout New England, and he just surpassed documenting his 10,000th uh, site. Uh, congratulations, Steve. And Steve has led a project into deciphering and preserving the Narragansett Runestone, and making his debut on Nightlight is Patrick Shackleton. He has retired from a career in naval aviation, has worked with other advanced advanced sciences, and is passionate about researching pre-Columbian contact. So welcome, Steve and Patrick. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, how how are you two tonight? I'm doing well, there, Steve. Uh, good. Yeah. Good. Good. Uh, okay, so um, we have uh, yeah if we. Yeah, I I know I've looked at you know, some maps like you know the triple A uh, books. They talk about in you know downtown Newport. There's the the uh, ruins of a windmill. Um. I have a feeling that you disagree with that. So, yeah, so that so <laughs> big time. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, so, uh, the windmill description is is the conventional wisdom. It's uh, it it's the mainstream point of view um, where the early colonists of Newport, Rhode Island, uh, constructed a, a a stone tower. Uh, to be used as a wind-driven gristmill, right? Um, it's completely out of yeah. place. It, it, uh, if, if it was constructed in the early colonial period, in the uh, Newport was was settled in 1639, so we're, we're talking 1639, 
up to 1677, um, the later date being the, the first historical mention of the old stone mill in, in a written document. So, but the thing is, is, uh, you know, it, it, it's an attractive theory. It, it, it resonates uh, with, with the folks who uh, have family in that area, who grew up in that area, whose, whose relations were among the, the first colonial settlers over here in America. So, so, so it's an attractive idea, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the conventional wisdom is, is that Benedict Arnold or one of his cohorts during that time period happened to construct this stone tower, this, this stone mill. Um, no, one, no one gave the Newport Tower uh, much, much thought uh, through the 1600s or, or 1700s or even the first part of the 1800s. Um, it was it was something that was on the landscape. It it really didn't gain notoriety until uh, a gentleman over in Europe, last name is Roffin, um, was corresponding with with someone there in Rhode Island who had sent him some drawings of this enigmatic stone tower over there. And and it was Roffin who uh, and he and he was a scholar. He he wrote. Um, researched history, you know, he was very well esteemed. Um, and he, uh, he took a look at the drawing and, and he felt that it was either a Viking or, or Norse tower dating back to, to the first part of, you know, back to the, back to the Viking era, which is 1000 AD. And then, um, the, the, the Norse, uh, followed along on the timeline there, so so that's when the notoriety for the Newport Tower started to build. Right, it was initially proposed that it was a Viking tower over in North America. It appealed to a lot of people for the early exploration in North America, um, and then things have have developed from that time period. That was in the 1830s, 1840 time period when when that theory came up, and it's been controversial ever since. Proponents for for the Viking theory, and then uh, uh, on the flip side, it was uh, folks who were adamantly against that, um, who who believe that it was a product of the early colonial period. Okay, so like some of the earliest documentation is that it is mentioned by 1639 and. Uh, it just it just doesn't sound like uh Miles Standish just walked off the Mayflower and built this uh windmill and right Steve, Steve's yeah, it's, it's... research into uh cartography I you know it's, he you know he he sent some really interesting information and th- this tower seems like it predated uh, you know, the pilgrims settling in uh, the Plymouth Bay colony by a, a very long period. Uh, 
Steve, can can you tell us a little bit about some of the earliest documentation of the Newport Tower showing up on the maps? Yes, uh, but before I do that, I just want to give you an idea of why we began this research in the first place. Okay. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, Pat and I wanted to try to prove one way or the other, and we were satisfied if we found evidence that the tower was actually built in the colonial period, we would be satisfied if we could prove that. Or if we could prove that it was not built in the colonial period, that would be exciting. So that is what began our quest several years ago to find out if the new portal was indeed, as they say, by modern academics, people in academia, uh, that it's a colonial artifact. Uh, we believed that let's look at some evidence and see if we can find either way uh, if this is indeed uh, a true fact or if it is indeed something medieval. So that's what began our quest. And so since there really is nothing in writing, there's nothing in writing at all that says, well, uh, when the colonists came, yeah, we saw this tower there, so we decided to co-opt it. There's nothing in writing, nothing in literature. There's nothing in medieval manuscripts, nothing. So Pat and I put our heads together. We said, well, what other place can we look to find evidence? So that began our quest, looking into maps. And Pat can certainly take it from that point. Yep. Okay. So, so let's step back a bit. So um, let, let's talk about what, what actually exists in the historical record uh, in, in written form about the Newport Tower. Okay. I, I mentioned previously uh, in 1677, there was actually um, in early 1677, there, there was a land deed, which made an oblique mention to the, to the stone mill. Um, a very brief passage, no, no real descriptive details, um, but they certainly were referring to the area which we know as Turrell Park today, um, and they, by using the combination of words of stone mill, they're, they're, they're also referring to what we know as the Newport Tower, right? So that was in early 1677 in a land deed. Later on uh, that year, uh, Benedict Arnold um, did a codicil to, to his will um, where he made specific mention of, of the old stone mill. That was the descriptive phrase. Now, um, that, that is, it is a pretty, you know, that, that's the, the second written mention uh, in the same year uh, referring to the old stone mill. Now, a, a, a will is, um, it's a different type document in the sense that um, most last wills and testaments um, will do a listing of one's personal property and how that's to be divided uh, between the heirs. Um, so there, there wasn't a lot of detail there. There was a mention of it and it is, and it's the first mention. Now, what doesn't exist prior to 1677 in any way, shape or form 
is any type of written documentation of uh, the construction of a mill by the colonist, right? Um, doesn't exist. Uh, it's not in the historical record. Some folks felt that, that it was written on some of the early deeds there in Newport, but, but that's not the case. There's, there's absolutely no mention prior to 1677 in any of the town records um, for the city of Newport, right? Um, and, and then there was very little written mention of, of the mill thereafter uh, up until uh, the early 1800s when, when Rothen um, turned it into a Viking tower, right? The only mentions um, for the old stone mill were in a series of property deeds uh, within the, the Arnold family and then being passed down to their heirs, right? So it just, it doesn't exist, uh, essentially, uh, any written records of it. Now, uh, in the 1840s, 1850 time frame, there was, a, there was an author who came through and uh, he was documenting, he was, he was on like a travel journey and, uh, and so he was documenting the different cities and locations in, in New England and he happened to pass through Newport. And, uh, and in his book, he, he made mention that there, there was no, uh, no written records aside from the deeds, um, but more importantly, there was no oral history of who had built the Newport Tower. Um, so collectively, uh, up there in, in, in Rhode Island, um, it, it was an enigma even back in, in the early 1800s. Uh, no one could recollect in any, any type of fashion who had actually constructed the Newport Tower. Uh, oral tradition, it, nothing was passed down, okay? Um, and, and they even queried one, one Native American tribe uh, as to whether or not they knew who built the tower. And at that time, now there's, there's multiple tribes that, that were in the Narragansett Bay area, right? Um, but as was written in, in that book I'm referring to, uh, the, the Native Americans uh, did not know who, who had constructed the tower. So just need to get that on record. Now, Steve did do some research, and, and he did find that there, there's an interesting mention uh, with regards to Old Plymouth uh, in a – in a book that was written in the 1670s by a gentleman named John Joslin. He was a, uh, he's presumed uh, to have been a physician over in England. He was very well educated. Uh, his brother um, was one of the early settlers over in New England working for Sir Ferdinando Gorges. So uh, his brother uh, was connected into the political class over in New England. And uh, the interesting thing is that John Joslin, now he, he initially, his first visit to, to New England was in the 1638 time period. And he, then he went back to England uh, for a bit, and then he returned for, for an, another eight, nine-year stretch in the, uh, in the 1660s, right? Um, and he spent quite a bit of his time up up in Maine, where, where his brother was 
was uh, involved with the uh, with politics, with the with the governance of of uh, that particular area in that time frame. But anyways, in his in his book, um, he he does a and and the Johnsons were they were explorers, right? Um, and, and and we know that. Uh, because they write about it in their book. They they travel throughout New England. Uh, John Joslin cataloged the, the flora and the fauna and the other stuff. And and, uh, and in this section where he's, he's doing this description of coming up the coast from the south and into the Narragansett Bay area, and he talks about Old Plymouth, um, and he remarks that it was the first – plantation that that the English attempted to settle there in New England, but it failed. Um, and he and he makes he's very specific. He he uh, pinpoints um, Old Plymouth as, as being on Aquidneck Island. Uh, he uses descriptive terms such as the Narragansett River, and and he makes very clear that that there was an old abandoned plantation. Uh, there at the south end of Aquidneck Island, and and he assigned the remnants of that plantation to Bartholomew Gosnold, who was an explorer, who who uh, came to New England once in 1602. Now the issue is, is that Gosnold was never in Narragansett Bay. Gosnold was out on Cuttyhunk Island, uh, a little bit displaced away from Narragansett Bay, up in the Cape Cod area, right? So um, it's an interesting twist that you have a, someone who's, who's recording the history of New England who was there on Aquidneck Island who cited the old Plymouth plantation, or at least he, he wrote of it, right? It, it's not clear whether or not he, he personally visited it or he got the information from someone else, but he's very explicit in his description, so we know it's Aquidneck Island. And he said now, that there's uh, an old plantation. Now, uh, Mark, uh, this is taken. Yeah. I'm going to quote directly from John Jocelyn's writings in 16th in his book. This is from his book. Sure, this ahead. is his writing. He says, the next place of note on the main is Narragansett Bay, within which bay is Rhode Island, a harbor for the Shunamithic brethren as the saints errant, the Quakers, who are rather to be esteemed vagabonds than religious persons. At the further end of the bay, by the mouth of the Narragansett River, on the south side, there was an old Plymouth plantation, dated 1602. That is his words in his book, referring to old Plymouth, being a plantation on Aquidneck Island. And then what Pat did, he took he found a map from William Wood that actually shows old Plymouth on a map that he that he uh, that he uh, drew. And Pat was able through uh you know wonderful uh working latitudes uh finding points of reference for latitudes, he was able to determine that old Plymouth is in the exact location in latitude as the current city of Newport, Rhode Island today. 
and that was it. That was our first real big break, uh, leading us toward finding evidence uh, of the Newport Tower being probably older than what the consensus had been that it was a seventeenth uh, century colonial artifact. Okay, and you know, just to incorporate uh, ancillary e- evidence, uh, it, there are the uh, spirit pond stones, uh, like there are three of them. Uh, one of them was dated to 1402. So we have uh, a very good possibility that this structure uh, could be uh, contemporary with the Spirit Pond Stones, uh, maybe some kind of European transatlantic visitor was here um there are several of these um enigmatic artifacts that were found not too far from each other Uh, how how does all when we look at all this information how does all this help to uh Confirm a more precise dating of the tower, and and then you know we have to get into the uh, cement as well. But you know maybe we could look at uh, yeah the dating of these uh, uh, stones first. Yep. So um, so 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 let's be clear on on a few things. Even though. so the square pondering stones discovered in 1971 by, by Walter Elliott, uh, three stones, uh, uses the young, younger food hearts, uh, system of, of runic characters. Uh, one of the stones contains a map, um, but they're, they're generally considered. And, and, and this is the conventional wisdom, um, that they are a hoax, right? So that's 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 the prevailing wisdom on the spirit pondering stones. Um, now I I uh, I, I kind of think contrary to the conventional wisdom on, on a lot of things, uh, but the spirit pondering stones. Um, so there's one aspect about the spirit, and I've done some research on the spirit pondering stones. Um, so there, there's actually a, a sequence of numbers and cardinal headings on the stones, um, and and it was something that I ran across about five years ago. And actually, it was it it's the entire reason why why I'm started to engage in this type of research, right? And and I I saw uh, the numbers and the cardinal headings, and uh, then I I went. And I read the Kensington runestone, the inscription for the Kensington runestone, and and they also That's contain, dated. yep, 
Yeah, and of course, that's way out in the Midwest. That's dated 1362. And r- right there in the inscription, there's there's a series of, of numbers and headings. So I picked up on that on, on a Saturday afternoon like five years ago. And I, and I, it, uh, it struck me, um, those numbers and headings struck me as uh, some type of uh, geodetic or, or, or geographic information. They, they, they look like geographic coordinates. And, and, uh, and I picked up on that because I'd been researching the history of Pittsburgh, Maine for four years prior to that. And I had spent a year and a half diving into the old land deeds dating back. Um, first land deed started there in 1659. And, and I would map out these uh, the parcel boundaries from these deeds. They're called bets and bounds, right? And, and so I'd spent a lot of time reading these old documents and doing that type of stuff. So, so when I read the inscriptions, it struck me, hey, those, those look like geographic coordinates. Now, I was, you know, I, I said, well, you know, if I'm going to tackle this, I, I, I got to be absolute, absolutely objective about this. Um, first off, it's strange to find that combination on, on two two of the most controversial runestones here in the United States, right? Secondly, if, if they, I'd have to prove that the number of cardinal headings uh, worked into some type of pattern uh, that would either confirm, that would confirm that they're geographic coordinates. And then after that, we'd have to assess it to see, well, could they have done it in, in the, in the 1300s and 1400s? Um, could they have done longitude and latitude? Um, in other words, are those geographic coordinates, are they indicative of, of the fact that the runestones are hoax or whether they're authentic? Okay. So that's how I got started into this stuff. So Spirit Pond, um, 1401, 1402 dating uh, parallels fairly closely within a few decades of the Kensington runestone being 1362. Um you have another runestone on the East Coast, which Steve has researched, the Narragansett runestone. There's no date assigned to that runestone. It, it, it does use an, an older uh, – it uses older runes on that runestone, Anglo-Frisian. Um, those runes were replaced by the Younger Foodheart around 900 AD. But that doesn't mean that the inscription was done – 900 AD or prior. It just means that someone used the older runic alphabet in crafting that inscription, whether it was a, a something that was done in the 1300s, 1400s, or, or whether you know a modern hoaxer decided to use that particular runic alphabet to to do that. And then you have the Newport Tower, right? So the argument about the Newport Tower, um, first off. Um, it's it's a colonial tower dating from from the mid 17th century or so, or or it's earlier, and and there's been carbon dating that's been done on the mortar on the tower, and and the results of that carbon dating um, were published in back in 1995, and and the uh, the verdict off the carbon dating of the mortar is that uh, it was a colonial era tower, right? Now, uh, so that's where we're at. That's the starting point, right? So 
for all these things. Um, you know, it's it's not a question of who did it. It's a question of, of examining uh, the conventional wisdom right now to see if if the consensus opinion is is valid and can be supported, right? Um, and if not, then then like Steve mentioned, we we have to produce uh, objective evidentiary proof to uh, um, to move the needle on these objects, right? So. Um, Spirit Pond, Narragansett, Kensington Runestone. Our big focus, though, really is on the Newport Tower because there's 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 more information uh, related to the Newport Tower um, that was p- potentially available in the historical record. Right, so so Steve and I have focused on on that primarily. So uh, okay. So after we. Uh, so after we uh, found uh, after uh, Pat found the map and was able to delineate that Old Plymouth was actually Newport, Rhode Island, then we began to uh, to to go in a certain direction. Uh, we said, "Why don't we look at some maps?" So we started to look at some maps. Our next discovery was the Valesco map. The Valesco map, 1610. It shows a lot of detail. A lot of people thought it was a hoax because it showed so much detail for such an early date in history. But focusing in on where Aquidneck Island was, I noticed there was an orange dot on the southern end of the island. So I sent Pat the email and the map. He took a look at it. He said, geez, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. Why would somebody put an orange dot someplace uh, like where Newport was located after we had just found the you know, the uh, William Wood map of 1634. So we said, well, look, let's let's expand our exploration. So we went to other maps. Uh, we, In fact, Pat found this book called The Icography of Manhattan Island. It has a lot of maps in it. So I was going through the, I was going through the book, going through the book, and I saw this map, 1639, by John Daniel. So I blew it up, took it couple of pictures of it and sure enough on the end of Aquidneck Island was a was a rectangular structure that had an X through it. We didn't know what the X was at the time. We we've since come to believe that it it represented what was a windmill, possibly. So okay. uh, that makes sense. Sending, sending all this uh, information to Pat, he got excited. Uh, he was able to get a, a clearer picture of the map. And then that began our quest to look at all maps, uh, whatever maps we could get our hands on. And um, and thankful to Pat and his diligent perseverance uh, in looking at maps. Uh, to date, I think we have close to 80 maps ranging from 1639 back to 1300. And Pat will go yes. into detail about some of these that show or depict the Newport Tower in various sizes, shapes, and that all depended upon the cartographer's mindset of how he wanted to 
show the Newport Tower. So, um, you know, it's uh, it it's been a it's been a uh, uh, an exciting couple of road, years. Steve. Yeah. 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 So, so, um, so first and foremost, uh, the, the research that, that Steve and I are doing um, in in looking for illustrations of of a tower on the North American landscape in the Narragansett Bay area. There's there's no real special skill or, or tools that, that anyone needs to do this type of research, right? Um, and 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 the reason why it's it's real simple. We we try to get um, high resolution uh, digital images of, of of these maps, right? So we we do a pre-screening to see if there's potentially uh, an illustration in the area, right? There's there's indications if you see an outline, if you if you see uh, you know something that looks like a tower, then then, then you got to kind of verify it, right? So then then we go out, we 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 order uh, from from museums if it's not available online, uh, high resolution photographs, and they they send them our way, and then and we take those photographs or images, we we take a snippet from it, we drop it into PowerPoint. And and uh, then we adjust the contrast and brightness, which which is a very common technique when you're looking at old documents, right? The ink's faded. Um, the the photograph may have been too uh, brightly lit when it was taken. So so you make those types of adjustments, and and, and those adjustments are made to, to every single pixel that's on the image. So we're not, you know, um, in, in a Hollywood style creating some type of illustration or some type of feature on the map, right? Um, and, and so you do that. Now, um, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, it, doing, doing that, using that type of methodology, uh, I just couldn't be done, right? Um, we, we live in an era where, where access to cartographic products has uh, has vastly improved because we we have the internet, right? Uh, secondly, mm-hmm. folks have, folks have been um, digitizing their archives uh, first and foremost to to preserve those artifacts in the event that there's a fire or an earthquake or something like that, right? It's you know it's it's a common thing. Folks are digitizing their archives, and all the credit goes to the curators and the archivists. And, all these places that have these these globes and these maps, right? They've done a fantastic job. And then having the ability to sit at a desk in your house and and merely work these images on your laptop computer or on your computer, I mean, it it's very simple, right? Twenty five years ago you'd you'd have to climb into an airplane and spend money and fly around and if you didn't have the ability to adjust the contrast and brightness of the images, you you want to pick up on a lot of these things. So um, we're, we're thankful that, you know, technology has really made this type of research. Um, uh, it, it has enabled it to be done, right? So we're taking advantage of that. So, so like Steve mentioned, we started looking at maps, right? Um, 
Mm-hmm. We we uh, we found some indication. You know, we, our first focus was was in the early 1600s, right? William Wood map, 1639 John Daniel map. Uh, then Steve found a map from 1631 that showed the tower inside Narragansett Bay. And then the more maps that we did where we could validate a feature uh, there in Narragansett Bay, the, the easier it became because we, we knew what to look for, what qualified, and then we moved on. Now, the interesting thing, um, when it, probably like the 10th map that, that we did, was a map that was made in 1631 by Visconti. Um, I pronounce it Maggiolo. It may be Maiolo. A lot of alternate spellings there. But um, supposedly he he was he was a great cartographer. Very prolific. Made a lot of maps, um, starting from around 1508 and then extending. Um, up to the 1550s, 1560 time period. And then his son actually was a cartographer, and, and he was producing maps as well. And we actually found the tower on Vescani on Maggiolo's son's map. But anyways, Maggiolo purportedly accompanied Verrazzano over to North America on Verrazzano's 1524 exploration. And uh, Verrazzano came across the ocean, uh, made landfall down in South Carolina area, went south for like 60 miles, then he turned around and started coming up the coast. Um, and the big thing about Verrazzano's voyage is that uh, he hauled into Narragansett Bay and spent 15 days in Narragansett Bay, right? And uh, And then... After, and, and it was a fantastic visit. Um, Maggiolo wrote a, wrote a letter upon his return to France in, in July of 1524 where he describes the exploration, the journey. He spends quite a bit of time talking about Narragansett Bay, the Native Americans, the, custom, uh, the customs, um, the lifestyle, and the other stuff. So uh, a very descriptive letter. What he didn't write about overtly in his letter was the Newport Tower, right? So uh, that's just how it is. But anyways, Maggiolo, who accompanied Verrazzano, he uh, he crafted some fantastic maps. Uh, the first one was dated 1527. Um, unfortunately, that, that map was destroyed uh, over in Europe during World War II, the only there, there were some reproductions of the map made, and there's a color photograph. But you, you can't use reproductions in this type of work, and 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 you have to have a, a good image to make sure that you to, to validate the features that you're looking at, right? So after 1527, Maggiolo produced another map in 1531, and on that 1531 map, he illustrated the Newport Tower. He, he he illustrated a feature within Narragansett Bay in the northwest, northeast quadrant of the bay that is clearly a tower structure. Um, and it has a cross coming out the, the top of the structure, boom, right there. Um, and, it, and it's similar to, to other features that, 
that Steve and I have found illustrated in the maps in, in the Narragansett Bay. So, so we just, uh, you know, we're we're still working the map stuff. Uh, we're up to 80 right now. Once we get in 2020, and, and we built slide decks and, and we shared a lot of this. Most most of the the map work that we've done, uh, we we shared on Facebook out on the internet. Some of the maps that that we've ordered via special photography. Um, there's restrictions on uh, placing it out in the public domain because those photographic images aren't our property, right? But eventually we'll publish and we'll have those those, those images included in there. But, okay, um, and Pat, oh, Pat, Pat, I was just going to say, uh, okay, so 1531 is um, – you know, like one of the earliest dates on a surviving original map. You know, you hear other theories about, oh, you know, the Newport Tower was a church. You know, just look at the, you know, the symbolic eight legs it stands on, and it's – a uh, circular church. Um, and it shows European uh, you know, architectural ideas uh, yep. being in, in America. It, so it's you know it could could be a windmill uh, or a church, but it shows that you know there there was some uh, knowledge. Transatlantic crossings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Steve, do you want to comment on that? Well, I think one thing uh, everyone has to understand is that uh, you have to get – it's imperative that you get out of the 21st century mindset when you look at these maps that go back four, five, six hundred years. And the reason is is that I've had people say, well – if a cartographer wanted to depict the Newport Tower, wouldn't he make it pristine and exact and put a roof on it and make it bright? And the answer is no, because we're thinking with a 21st century mindset. Uh, and all the maps that we've looked at, our perception has enlarged and increased to the point where we're beginning to understand that cartographers had their own special, unique way of depicting the Newport Tower. Sometimes it's a rectangle. Sometimes it's round with a roof. Sometimes it's a a triangle with a roof. Uh, Sometimes it's placed on land. Sometimes it's placed in the water off the coast. Uh, That's just the way uh, they, that was their mindset on how they wanted to depict the Newport Tower. So uh, when I hear people say, well, you show them something, well, what, you know, here's the new Porto. They say, well, don't you think it should have been uh, more pristine? Well, yeah, maybe it should have been more pristine according to us, but you got to get out of the 21st century mindset in order to understand how these wonderful people who made these maps uh, depicted the new, new Porto. Also, I just want to say, a- if, not, if, if not for Pat's ability to take these maps, because Today's maps, you have latitude lines, longitude lines, they're precise. Back then, 
basically latitude was basically known, but the continent of the East Coast or the continent of America, if you go way back, was not known. So when they put the Newport Tower on the map, uh, sometimes it was off a couple of degrees or so, but Pat has been able to take these old maps and delineate the exact latitudes in order to precisely identify an item on a map that really has no latitudes. So uh, that's been a great help in helping us to discover the Newport Tower on all these maps. So, so, so well, Mark, well, here, here's, here's what our focus is on the maps, okay? You know, okay. it's, it's um, Steve and I, our, our, our research, you know, right now we're going through, we're, we're identifying the maps that it's on. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. we we got to catalog all the features on all these maps. we got to map out. Um, not doing a pun there. But we got to map out um, the countries that the cartographers were from. we got to look for patterns in those relationships, right? And, and, and then we have to present uh, a, a very coherent case that uh, these tower features that we're finding are, are evidence of knowledge of the Newport Tower being over here in North America. Um, so, so it's got to be very detailed. Um, we got to discriminate very, very well with with all these illustrations, and, and then we got to get it written up and then submitted for for an academic review, right? Steve and I were just avocational researchers. We enjoy doing this type of work. Uh, so, so there's a lot of steps that 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 need to be done, done well, and then we need to submit this. Um, and and it quite possibly might, you know, we, we'd like to get it published after an academic review, but that's, that's a ways down the road there. But I would say for avocational researchers, you know, um, it, you, it, it's a lot of work. It, it's a lot of effort in, in, in taking research seriously. Um, you have to do it well. You have to be thorough. You have to be detailed. You have to consider all the possibilities. Then you have to do a coherent write-up, uh, and, and then you need to submit that for academic review because um, the, the whole purpose in doing this type of research um, is is to raise awareness and 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 to gain acceptance for for the for the work that's been done. Right, so. We're not going to take any shortcuts on it. I know we're talking about it in kind of a flippant manner here. There are a lot of maps out there. We'll call them down. But the focus is uh, we got to present a coherent case um, that there's evidence in the Newport Tower being illustrated on the North American landscape prior to the colonial era, right? And and if we do that well enough, then then hopefully that will unlock the paradigm that we all seem to be in, the conventional wisdom where where the only acceptance of there is no acceptance of any pre-Columbian contact except for the Vikings, right? We, we feel that the Newport Tower is, is part of the, the puzzle, part of the evidence that uh, demonstrates that uh, folks knew about North America. They had traveled over here. They had even built a, a, a navigational marker survey point there in Narragansett Bay, um, 
and, and that was the Newport Tower. Okay, so, so, and, and, so and Mark. Oh, and, go, and, go ahead, Steve. Forgive me. Forgive me. In addition to that, uh, if people don't want to believe that, just say they don't want to believe what they can see with their eyes. Pat has done an amazing job in uh, showing that the Newport Tower is basically a uh, what is it, uh, a rectangular sundial or a vertical sundial. Uh, he has been able to show so many alignments, illuminations, all based on trigonometry, calculus, algebra. I know it's hard, hard to fathom because we have this mindset in the 21st century, well, we're really superior and that the people that came before us really weren't that superior. But in essence, they really were the ones that were superior in being able to come up with all these equations and ways of uh, of uh, putting things together so that alignments on certain stones and openings inside the tower uh, become uh, a mir- almost like a miraculous miracle to us today. But uh, thanks to Pat, Pat's uh, um, research into the tower and that as- aspect alone could prove that the Newport Tower is definitely not a colonial artifact. Yeah, and Steve, just to take what you just said, um, uh, and connect it to uh, America's Stonehenge from the first hour, you know, uh, America's Stonehenge is more uh, like horizontal, and the Newport Tower is obviously vertical, but both places emphasize like a lot of the same uh, alignments and you know, the astronomical understanding. It's actually very uh, interesting how both sites are used as calendars. Right, but I think Pat will, uh, can tell you that I think the Newport Tower is is definitely more complicated. Yeah. So. Um, okay. So, so solar alignments uh, were, were were certainly a way of of marking time. Um, you, you find them in, in a lot of different cultures, extending uh, well back in time. Um, the, the importance of, of marking the seasons, uh, knowing the time of the year, and that, you know that was that was something that had a lot of importance in, in, in terms of agricultural of agriculture. Right? You had to know when. What, when to sow the seed into the ground. You had to know your growing season. Um, so, so alignments um, are really reflective of um, time junctures, right? Uh, your, your solstices mark the endpoints uh, of the, the the cycle where where the Earth uh, first tilts one way. And, and then over the course of half the year, it, it reverses and it, it, it tilts to its maximum declination. 
the other way, right? And then the equinoxes mark uh, equal parts day and night. So, you know, solar um, alignments uh, had, a, had a purpose. They had a function, right? So, and, and the Newport Tower is no different. Um, there's, there's alignments in the tower there. Uh, probably, probably the first work, uh, most certainly the first work on, on the alignments at the Newport Tower was were done by Professor William Penhallow and, and a group of folks uh, up there in Rhode Island um, where they, they were observing the tower, right? They, uh, William Penhallow, uh, he, he was a, a professor of astronomy there. Uh, and, and so he understood the, the dynamics between the celestial heavens and, and the movement of the moon and the sun like that. So, so he was looking at the tower. And, and he started to pick up on, on, on the fact that um, the, the niches and the windows, uh, they're, 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 there seemed to be a pattern to them, a very deliberate uh, design pattern. Um, and so, so he, uh, he and others, they researched it. They, they published some papers. Uh, one of their big finds was, was uh, the lunar major and lunar minor alignments from the east window to the west window. There's, there's a paper out there on the internet that, that folks can download. Uh, he, he published a, a few articles there. It's, it's all good work. Now, another gentleman who was helping um, William Penhow, who got involved with it, uh, was Jim Egan, right? Uh, Jim Egan um, expanded uh, the, the initial work of a professor Penhallow, um, and he he's done a fantastic job up, up there at the Newport Tower uh, in in documenting other alignments uh, and in in keeping the story of the Newport Tower alive. Fantastic gentleman. Um, if you ever go up to Newport, I, I, I would put it on everyone's bucket list to to pay a, a visit uh, to Jimmy again and listen to his theories on the tower. Uh, very engaging gentleman, very nice person. And anytime a researcher goes up there to research the tower, uh, Jim always lends a helping hand. He, he's done it many, many times for, for myself and the other folks that we've done it. So anyways, um, so one of, the, one of the interesting things that, that Jim Egan found um, well, I have a few minutes left here. Uh, he, and, and it's significant, right? So he, Jim, uh, and of course, this is through observation, right? Jim discovered that, that on the winter solstice, that uh, shortly after sunrise, the, the, the sun um, will create what's called this, I call it a light box through the south window. It's an illumination, right? passes through the west window, and then a short time later, it, it runs across this, this egg-shaped feature that, that's sitting in the arch between uh, pillars number seven and number eight. And, uh, and Jim saw significance with that um, for, for a few reasons. It, and it... It's uh, you, you can't miss the egg when you look at the tower, okay? I know a lot of folks assert, hey, it's just another stone. It's just sitting there, right? But, I mean, it's it's, it's pretty remarkable uh, visually. You go out there and you take a look at it, and you're like, bam, 
And so Jim found the alignment. Uh, Scott Walter, uh, a few years later, um, postulated that the egg happened to be positioned on on the tower uh, at a position that that's in alignment with the Kensington runestone out of Minnesota. It's quite quite an interesting concept there. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it, it sounds like the, that that. Uh, uh, the long distance alignment actually works. So, actually, that's um, that, that's how I ended up focusing on on the Newport Tower. Initially, I was just looking at Kensington Runestone, Spare Pound Runestone for the geographic coordinates, and and I'd be out there reading on the internet. Um, and Scott Walter had already published his his book. At, at the time that said, hey, there's this alignment going out there. And uh and folks were just you know, they were they were uh number one, they didn't believe what, that there was an alignment, right? And and you know, some of the comments were uh were were pretty harsh, right? And they're like, ah yeah. So there's a lot of folks on the internet commenting on on Jim Egan's um egg, egg illumination, right, on the winter solstice, and then a lot of folks were, were criticizing Scott Walter for saying there's alignment, and uh, I thought, well, you know, that's that's pretty easy to to verify whether whether Walter's correct or not. I mean, it's it's a structure. We can go up there. We can we can measure the circumference of it. Um, we we can uh, scale out. Uh, you know, it's the degrees, and, and and then we can determine whether whether that egg-shaped stone, uh, the arch between pillar seven and eight, if it's if it's physically sitting at at a position that does form an alignment going out uh, to the Midwest and the Kensington Rune stuff. So over time, me and some other folks went up there and and we did the measurements, and as it turns out, the egg. Uh, the leading edge, the southern part of the egg, is within like three tenths of a degree of uh, of sinking up to the Kensington Runestone's location. Now that's just an associative, wow. associative type finding. Okay. Hey, uh, you know, with with that uh, captivating uh, fact, I think we're going to have to. Stop there, uh, Barbara. Do you want to wrap things up? I just want to thank uh, Pat and Steve for giving us this fascinating discussion. And uh, Barbara, you step in and wrap things up, and we'll see everyone back here tomorrow night with Mary Joyce and Barbara. You have a show I, Thursday. Uh, um, I I don't have one on Thursday, but well, I have one where I'm a guest, but. Um, I do want to thank these guys for, you know, helping to expand our understanding of, of the, the tower because it is it is something that um, we certainly have talked a lot about. I want to thank everybody for being with us, for joining us tonight, and uh, remind you that, that, you know, we're usually here every Monday and Tuesday. And, uh, of course, when we come up to the holiday, it may not be quite as frequent. We're going to take a little time off. But thank you, everybody, for listening. We greatly appreciate your time, your energy. Wishing everybody a good night, good evening, and we'll talk to you all soon.